everyone. Welcome to Define the Relationship podcast, a podcast where we explore the relationship we have with the Bible and ourselves. I'm one of your hosts, Darlene Enstick. And I'm the other host, Ted Enstick. And as you can tell from our names, we belong together. I just defined the relationship. And so rather than seeing polarization as a problem, I think it's more helpful for us to see it as a sign that our allegiances are being called to people who are speaking up, which is why when there's nothing on the line, right, it's very easy for people to just sort of get along, right? Um, As soon as someone says, actually, I want to get married too, um, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, no, that's not allowed. Like only straight people should get married. No, gay people. Like... That's, that's actually a sign that there's some kind of movement work afoot in our communities. It's an opportunity for us to say, yes, we need to, we need to line up in solidarity with the people where, who are experiencing marginalization. It's not a time for us to try to fix that as a problem. Well, it's good to be back with you after a bit of a break. And today you're in for a real challenge as Darlene and I sit down with Melissa Flora Bixler to discuss her new book, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger, and the Work of Peace. Melissa Flora Bixler is pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church, and along with all that, she and her spouse parent three children. Welcome, Melissa Flora Bixler, to the Define the Relationship podcast. I want to say welcome, Melissa Flo Bix, or Flora Bixler, uh, to Define the Relationship podcast. Um, It's really good to have you here, and... um, I thought a good place to start, we thought, how should we have a relationship with our enemies? Like, how, how do we define um, our relationship with with our enemies? Just start us off with, like, how, how would you define your relationship to your enemies in your life? <laughs> yeah, well, I have to say, um, I, you know, just as a preface... Um, I grew up in evangelicalism and define the relationship was like a formal term. And do you know about this? Like DTR. Yeah. 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 We had some fun um, kind of playing around with that, you know? Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah, No, I was like, Oh, I get to DTR with Ted and Darlene. This is (laughs) like taking me back, taking me back to my youth. It's amazing. So, um, yeah, so I love that. Um, yeah, but um, your DTR with the enemy. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, what's like um, enmity is 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 a relationship already, and the problem that we have is defining it, right? Because I think we um, when we hear enemy, there are so many possibilities for what people are thinking, right? Like um, my um, oldest and middle child would often describe their relationship as one between enemies, right? And and also um, uh, people who are victims of genocide would describe like their relationship to uh, to their perpetrators as enmity. Somehow, both of those relationships are are supposed to be able to hold the same term together which I think is the place where this is such a difficult topic for the church, right? Is because um, if I'm thinking of enemy as somebody that I don't get along with or um, someone that I got in a fight with once, right? Um, That 
that suddenly um the the word becomes so vast that it really it just it becomes meaningless after a while um which is why i really wanted to be upfront about just sort of like a this is sort of like what we're using in this book to define what an enemy is um and really trying to utilize that from like where enemies occur in the bible um, and so the the place that I ask people to at least come along with me in, in for a working definition is um, difference plus power. Um, so it isn't just that we're in conflict, but it's a conflict where um, there is the possibility of power over or the possibility to uh, for that power to harm or control or to coerce another person. Um So that can be a struggle for power. It can be very clear who has power and who doesn't. It could be that that's shifting in the relationship. Um, But my kids have pretty equal power to one another, which is very little, right? So I would actually not, they're often in conflict, but I don't really think that they're enemies. Um, That's a word that I think we need to be, that needs to be preserved for a particular type of relationship. Hmm. Yeah, like you have a, I'm just thinking about a quote um, from your book from page 69, where you talk about the painful process of translation. Um, So I'm just going to read it and maybe you can comment on a bit because I think it connects to this kind of how do we define who are actually enemies and who are just people who we have differences with. So you said one of the challenges for the church is creating space for difference while at the same time discerning when this difference takes on forms of power that make a turn toward enmity. And then you say anger is a clarifying force that helps us to make this distinction. But maybe you want to comment on the first part, and then we'll get into the anger thing, because I think we're very interested in talking about the anger thing. That's, uh, that seems like a real relevant thing for us and for most people that are going to be listening to this. But what's the difference between difference, difference and, like, and how do you discern difference that actually is kind of um, grounded in power difference as well? I mean, I think we need communities to help us with that because it can often be difficult for us to see that both because we can uh, assume that harm is being done when it's, you know, we, we often hear, oh, this is this is accountability, but we receive it as harm, right? Um, so that's one dynamic that I think happens. But the other is, that we are actually being harmed. Um, We're being asked to sustain some sort of unity or to be the people who, um, you know, we hold it together within our difference when actually we're in uh, relationships or churches or communities where, uh, where it is actually to hold that difference together is harmful to us. So an example of this, I think is, um, uh, Churches who aren't really sure where they're at on on LGBTQ people, um, but don't really want to talk about that, right? It's the sort of a a secret that you try not to tell within your congregational life. Um, And so people get invited into this church thinking that they're going to be supported. They can get married there. They can teach Sunday school only to find out two or three years later after they've deeply invested in these relationships actually they aren't supported there that that people are against their marriage or are not for them in that particular way and so asking people in that position to maintain unity and difference 
is actually a, that's a form of harm. That's asking them to, to disproportionately bear, um, uh, the, the weight of marginalized power in that community. And we see that happen in all sorts of ways in our churches. Yeah. I mean, I have to say one of the most powerful, um, sentences that the book has left with me is that like that rethinking of who is bearing the weight. And, um, I've, I've talked about that in so many places in the last couple of months and felt that like in every, in so many situations, like I'm kind of like, I feel like I've got this new pair of glasses on and I'm like, well, who is bearing the weight there? And like you said, the, the disproportionate, um, weight that often the powerful are asking the others, well, to be just a little more patient or a little less angry. Um, and, and once you are looking for it, I feel like you see it everywhere. And so maybe, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I want to thank you for, for giving us that, that lens to begin looking at power. And, and I think that's a really helpful way of kind of distinguishing what's just a, you know, um, a, a situation of difference versus um, a situation of power. So on that specific topic, I was in a conversation um, with a group of pastors discussing LGBTQ um, um, relations within the church. And um, one pastor said, you know, well, it's been so costly for us to enter this conversation. And I just feel like, why can't we just compromise? And as soon as that comment was made, I immediately thought about this idea that, well, but who, you know, that's not an equal question, like where, oh, we just both should compromise who has to bear more of the weight of that compromise and how costly is that compromise to exactly people that we may not be aware of yeah yeah and it just feels like in the church we're just constantly seeing examples of asking um those on the bottom to bear more of that bear more of that weight um Mm. which makes me angry (laughs) and Um, I think, you know, for myself, anger is, is an emotion that is not appropriate has, you know, growing up, certainly not appropriate. And so I, I want you to just share more with, um, you know, our community, there's different lenses through which people might be experiencing this. One is, I think, you know, a lot of people in this Mennonite community have like, have this sense that we are not, we're not really supposed to be angry like that, that we feel like the Bible God, um, has given us this message not to be angry. And I feel like you've really emboldened (laughs) me to be more mad (laughs) in writing this book. I'm also an Enneagram one and, you know, anger is kind of like this thing I felt ashamed about. And so I would just love to hear you kind of share a bit more about a vision for cultivated 
anger, um, in the church and how that, um, is something not only that is okay, but that is, um, like crucial. Yeah. I, you know, I, I certainly sense that too. I didn't grow up in the Mennonite church, but I've been in the Mennonite church for my entire adult life. And, and I, and I do think there is some, there is a sense of shame as if the opposite of peace is actually anger. Right. I don't, I don't know if you've ever had that sense that, um, which I think is, is tied in some way. I mean, I do think that there's some trauma response there of, um, we have to keep it together ourselves because this world out here has been so often willing to destroy us. Right. Um, so, so it's really important that we, we hold it together ourselves, right. United front here. Um, so I certainly think that that's, that's a piece of it. Um, but I do think there's also a sense where we, we sort of, um, have shifted away from, um, like a, a materialism to, to a sort of relational or emotive peacemaking, right? Like, um, what, what peace is, is that you don't feel uncomfortable in our, con- or that we can meet somewhere in the middle that we can compromise, um, that at the end of the day, we both walk away feeling good about the relationship. Um, and I think we've, the, the, of course, in that kind of scenario, the enemy is anger, right? Like that, that disrupts all of those possibilities. Um, but if you have that, if we walk away feeling, you know, okay about the relationship, or at least we're not angry at each other and we understand each other and nothing materially has changed about whatever the conflict was, that's not, that's not actually peace. That's just conflict avoidance, which we are excellent at in the Mennonite church. Um, I mean, the number, like we're once again here in the U S with like the, um, our executive board, like, let's just have five more years to talk about LGBTQ inclusion in the church. What if we just put this off for another, you know, I'm not sure we're ready to talk about this. You're like, what is this? Like you're 20 of like not talking about these things. And, and again, the enemy is anger, right? It's that anger will cause division. Um, yeah. Right. So, and so, so you said yeah. about it, that anger should actually be a tool. It's not a, it's not sort of something we should be kind of, how, how can anger be a tool for us? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to just say is that we just get angry about things, right? Like that's anger is just a, it's a natural reaction to injustice or feeling harmed or sensing hurt. Um, and I think the question is, you know, what do you do with it then? It's, you know, it's, it's like, you don't get a, you don't get a choice like about like, in fact, if you don't feel angry about injustice, there's, there's probably something wrong, right? Like, like there's some moral deformation. If you're like, Oh, I feel fine about these refugee kids drowning in the Baltic sea, right? Like that should stir something in you. Um, and so the question is, how do we create spaces, communal spaces to discern that anger together? And that takes a lot of trust, right? Like, um, I don't, I don't get angry without, with people who I don't trust, because I don't, you know, I, I don't care what those people think. Like if I don't trust you to let in, in a relationship, um, that's, that's not really, that's not a place where I'm going to put my emotion. Um, 
anger, like actually being able to be angry together takes a lot of communal trust. Um, it takes a lot of building to create a community that can handle that together. Um, which sort of feels like the thing that we're trying to do in church, right? Like to be one of those places. Um, and once you can say what you're angry about out loud, you have other people there to help you figure out what's going on, right? It's that's where I think Audrey Lord says anger is like a, like, is like a fire because it can, it's this clarifying force, right? It burns off all the other stuff that you're sort of walking around. Well, we've talked about this for a long time or I'm sort of skirting the issue, but anger just gets to the heart of it, right? Like that really exposes what's, what's going on underneath. Um, and so it's, it's really powerful. Um, the other thing I would say about that about angers, I think it just gets a bad rap for being, um, like out of control or harmful, but there's a lot of ways to be angry, right? Like, um, that anger doesn't have to harm. Um, I would suggest that Jesus is angry for the entire gospel of Mark. <laughs> like he's just like unhappy for that. That is just a gospel of Jesus being discontent mad, unhappy with the disciples over and over again. Um, and so we actually have these models for like what, it, what, it, how to be angry, um, and in discontent in feel in feeling our anger without it, without it necessarily causing harm. That's, that's a possibility for us. Hmm. So, it's, so it should, instead of be something we're trying to repress, trying to put aside, trying to be better at just avoiding, you're saying, hey, let's get honest about it and then let's work from there mm-hmm. and say, hey, is that healthy? Is that unhealthy? What's going on here? What, what's really going on? You know, how are, yeah. how are we harming? How are we maybe bringing about healing through the process of anger? Which, which means yeah. a commitment to... Um, feeling really uncomfortable, I think, Mm. because anger, I think it's, it's an uncomfortable emotion in that it often is, feels very like raw and, um, at least for me, it's an uncomfortable emotion. And also in my like more psychological, uh, education training, uh, it's always talked about as a secondary emotion. I was curious about whether whether you view that as a secondary emotion. And, um, you know, often in our conversations, we've talked about, okay, well, what's really going on? And, mm-hmm. but since reading your book, I think that Sometimes when people have said that to me, when I express anger and they say, okay, well, let's talk about what's really going on. It also feels like a way to not deal with the anger. It's like, let's invalidate that because there's something deeper going on. And it's like, well, what if I'm just mad? Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's true. And I, I guess more than, because I think it's usually like sadness, right? Like, you're actually sad about something. Um, but I think, um, rather than sort of wanting to like, say like, well, anger, just, let's just shift this to another emotional plane. So what, what we're the opportunity that we're given collectively is to say, 
anger is a signal, right? That something is amiss. It, it is. Um, I don't know that we have to sort of take that step of saying, oh, it's another emotion as much as we need to say, this means something for us communally, that this is, that this is emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Can you give us like, do you have any examples to give us of how you've maybe practiced this in your own community or? Yeah. Um, I, I think one place that we have had to begin to um, create some new spaces for openness to anger have been in our church life meetings. Um, so which, which we make decisions by consensus in church life meetings every other month. Um, and I, when I first got here, I noticed that there was a lot of like, um, email conversations that happened church that were happening like churchwide, like, Oh, like, let's like, like, let's try to talk this out on email ahead of time or, people kind of talking in small groups before the church life meeting, oh, oh, which to me was sort of like, oh, that's because everybody wants to like have actually come to the answer before they actually see people in person, because who knows what could happen when we talk about this difficult issue in front of everybody. Um, someone might get mad, right? And And so being able to... Um, slowly over time, actually, I feel like this is like a muscle you have to exercise as a congregation. You have to be able to say, oh, look, we face this conflict and we're fine, (laughs) right? Like we can do this. And so the next time you face conflict, next time there's anger that emerges in in a conversation or in a relationship, um, you can say, remember we did this last time and we are, we care enough about each other. We have the relational strength that we need, um, the relational vulnerability to be able to continue to cultivate life beyond this. This is not the end of the relationship. This is what it takes to be in relationship. This is actually what it takes to be a church. Otherwise we're all just pretending that everything is fine here. Um, so let's just like, let's, let's be honest about the space that we can create in our church life meetings. Um, to, to really hold, to hold this among us. I'm curious about as the leader of that congregation doing that. I mean, um, how do you not fall into the trap of trying to kind of, like you talked about before, sort of like hold, hold it together in the midst of maybe trauma is, is too big a word for what's going on. But, um, how do you fight? How do you kind of enter the conversation versus sort of try to keep it together as the leader. Um, Cause it feels like often we find ourselves in a situation where we're just trying to be more mature or more like, you know, kind of be the adults in the room to use like some, maybe some of that language is a bit pejorative, but it's sort of how you feel about it as a leader is you can't sort of, you can't let loose yourself. You need to be managing, facilitating. How do you do that? Yeah, you know, I I think one one way that we've that I've done that um, is to create um, create worship spaces where there is opportunity for 
um, for lament and for grief to emerge. That is, I think, actually like a helpful secondary tool to anger and, and can actually be, it often feels like it is a co-conspirer with anger. Um, and, and that, I think, allows people to voice what is at stake in, in the question, in the concern, in, in whatever is going on. Um, and then, um, that just allows us spaces to, to, to like make to, for this to be personal. Right. So I think an example of this is, and I talk about this in the book and, and people bring it up as, as being quite surprised that we, that we really mourned the Sunday after Donald Trump was elected president. We did not come into that space and we're like, well, some of us are winners here and some of us are losers. It was like we had been preparing ourselves and like talking about the rhetoric of the Trump administration or of the Trump candidacy. We had been unpacking like how traumatic that was to queer people and black people, to undocumented people in our congregation for the for months at that point. And so, um, and so when we finally were together that Sunday after, um, after the election, it was very clear, um, what we needed collectively as a people. Um, and what I always just say is, you know, if people are looking for a place that, that where they wanted to hear that they were winners and losers and, you know, we're sort of like, just have to deal with this now and try to stick together. There are literally, you can throw a stone and hit a church that offered that message on Sunday. You just don't need to go to Raleigh Mennonite. Like that's um, like, it's, it's, there are churches that are, are per, that, that want to offer that space. And that's just not our church. Neutrality is not a, not a gift. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this might be a bit of a tangent, but I was thinking before when you were talking about the LGBTQ plus clarity question about how do you clarify where you are rather than keeping the conversation below the surface. It just reminded me of, I, I, I remember many years ago when we were in the States in, in certain cities, we just often, we I was just curious about the classified, uh, not the classifieds, the uh, yellow pages how churches describe themselves. And I always got a kick out of churches that would say they'd have like four lines. It would be like King James Version, premillennial, inerrant. Um, and then, I don't know, we usually use a fourth thing. And I was thinking, well, they are very clear about who they are as a community. Do you think some version of that actually is a, a way to be create a space where one can be a bit more honest about about the things that really matter? Like, would you, would there be sort of a version for Raleigh Mennonite of what those four items would be that would signal to people, this is a place where we understand who the enemy is? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we have a welcome statement on our on our front page, right? Which I think is like a moral responsibility of every church at this point to like be very clear about where they're at with LGBTQ people. Um, and people come to our church because they see that, right. Because they know that this will be a safe space. This will be sanctuary for them. It won't be a place where they have to find out in a year, whether or not this would, you know, this was actually true, um, kind of roll the dice on this. Um, so I think it's more, um, for us that um 
that like we there are there are things that we need to be clear about within ourselves and within um because of the kind of place that we want to be right like um you can choose to be a church for everybody or you can be a sanctuary for people who their life outside of the church is marked by exclusion and um, harassment by um, by by political attempts to deny their humanity by ice raids by um, racist politics. You can be a sanctuary for those people, or you can be a place that sort of says that we don't really talk about those things, and everybody's sort of welcome here, and we just have to figure that out. I think churches eventually find themselves having to make that decision, um, and we just try to live. Live, it would not take anyone very long <laughs> to figure out that like, well, we have two immigration attorneys in our congregation and in our budget, we actually give money to help pay for people's green cards. Like if you are not into that, <laughs> this is probably not the church for you. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. That was helpful. Thanks. I'm, I, uh, we didn't talk about asking this question, but I mean, I noticed yesterday you were um, in a Facebook conversation around the open table and quite, quite fulsome conversation about that and we see ourselves as a congregation that has an open table and we are pretty i don't know we're pretty committed to that and you have a perspective that maybe like i'd love to hear your perspective on that because it seems to kind of at least at the very at one level sort of maybe chafes against the open table approach do you want to say a bit about about that because i feel it's around this clarity thing too about who can who do we invite to be at the unity of the table and who do we, would we rather not have at that table because of power enmity dynamics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Ted, as a traditionalist, um, deeply traditional, deeply biblical. <laughs> um, it is kind of funny though, that it is a very like traditionalist sort of position on, on communion that, you know, I, I think our, Anabaptist forebears who are onto something when, um, and actually this has been, this, it's only in the last 10 years that we've seen a shift in this in any pretty, any denomination, Protestant or Catholic, that we, the assumption was that baptism came before communion, right? Um, that you were baptized, um, and in our tradition, because on confession of faith, right? You, um, made an, a decision, this is, these were going to be your people, which means that you were committing to a particular kind of life among them. Um, and part of that was an openness to accountability and mutual admonition, right? So once I'm baptized, um, I can't just go off and work for an oil company anymore (laughs) or, or go build, um, nuclear warheads, right. Without someone in the church coming to me and being like, what's happening, you know, what's happening here? Like, let's, you know, this is, we need to talk about what, what's going on. Um, and so you are in baptism, we open ourselves up to, um, to a form of, of life that is then remembered, like the members coming back together in communion. Um, that becomes the place where we become one at the table. Um, and so I, everybody, I, I mean, I feel like sometimes open tables kind of, um, 
it's like, it's, it's, there's a, everybody has a line, right? Like, like by, by saying this is the body of Christ, you're excluding people who don't believe this is the body of Christ, right? Like anything we do gives shape to inform that gives shape and form to the sacrament, um, is, is basically something that someone is not going to want to be a part of, right? I, none of my Jewish friends want to take the body of Jesus into them, right? No matter how much I say, this is, you're welcome to come and receive, right? Like, so there, there are ways that we are already, and we're already saying that there's things that this is and things that this aren't. Um, so I think that's the first thing to recognize. Um, the second is that we, I think we need to like figure out what we actually mean when we're having communion, right? Um, if it's just an individual experience, me and God, um, if I can take communion on my own, um, with my friends, just off somewhere, if it doesn't actually require a congregation, that's fine, right? It's an, it's an individual grace that I receive. If other people are involved, that, that changes things, right? Like, how are those people involved? What are these other people? Are we just simultaneously receiving individual pieces of grace? Um, or does this actually say something about who we are as a people? Like, is this some kind of proclamation of our unity? Um, and if that's the case, um, which I think it is, um, then it really matters what we mean to each other when we receive. Um, and so I mean, you know, I think the the example that I use pretty frequently is um, because it it does happen. People receive communion who have been abused with their abuser, right? Um, and the in saying to those people, well, we just all become one in Christ. Um, this doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with one another. This is just about your relationship with God. That's making a decision about what the table means, right? Um, and so for our church, the Sunday before, we we do the old school pledge of love, um, the Hubmeyer pledge of love from the 16th century. Um, and we basically say, now's the time to attend to your relationships. Like, what do y'all mean to each other? Um, what is, what do you, what do you, um, how are you caring for the earth? How is your, how are you spending your money? Um, who do you need to get right with? Um, and it's never, and we never have an expectation that that's done perfectly. We take community every month, right? Um, but the, that is an, a way for us to um, take seriously that actually communion does something to us. It is a sacrament that makes us one. Um, and so we want to be committed um, to the ongoing work of right relationship with one another, with our communities, with our world, um, as part of that process of always um, of, of always giving and receiving this grace that we experience in communion. So what are you going to do when uh, Joe Biden walks into your Raleigh, North Carolina Mennonite church? What are you going to do? Are you going to respond like uh, the trad Catholics would like to respond? Or I, I, I mean, it's uh, it's it's not, I'm not even joking because there would be somebody who would be sort of obvious to you that they're not a part of your community. Um, do you have a, actually a way of managing that, like practically, or are you just sort of like lucky enough that that never actually happens? People know enough to stay away or whatever. 
I'm, yeah, like, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like a, it's an absurd sort of example, and yet it also, um, it, you know, it's a practical problem. Like, who, yeah, how do you manage that, really? Well, it's, I, I don't get any impression from scripture or our tradition that somehow it's the person presiding over communion who's responsible for that, especially in a priesthood of all believers, right? Like that is, um, I, I mean that I've, I've no, um, I'm just, I'm a priest among priests here. I don't really have any, <laughs> any say over this. Um, and also, you know, I, I don't think it's, um, what, what we can offer is the formation of our community over time within this particular form of life that we believe in. Um, um, and there's nothing that we can do about like other people. Like, um, that's, it is not our responsibility. Um, because the idea is not the purity of the table. The idea is about the relationships that we share with one another in community. Um, and if someone decides they don't want to take that seriously, if, somebody punched someone in the parking lot, but before church and then comes up and receives the sacraments, I'm going to talk to that. Like, I would absolutely be like, Hey, what's going on? Like, are you like, do you, um, and if we had, um, a persistent case of abuse that was, um, or harm that was addressed congregationally and the person decided to continue and pursue, we wouldn't let that person worship with us until they were ready to repair that harm. Like that, that feels like a pastoral responsibility to say, um, you're not going to mock this body, um, by, by coming in after over and over again, we've said, you need to stop hurting this person. Um, that's a pastoral responsibility too, but it's not about protecting the table. It's not about power. It's not about purity. It's about what do we want to declare to the world with our bodies? Um, and, um, and we recognize that like, there's going to be people who take that more seriously than others. And that's not, that's not our responsibility to like figure that out for them. It's just an invitation to join this particular kind of life. I like, I like your response. Thanks. Did we go on a rabbit trail on that one? I don't know. I, I, that's the problem with Facebook. I see Melissa Fora Bixler on Facebook, and she's getting into it with people. And it's like, I got to watch. And then it's like, hey, she's talking about us. <laughs> <laughs> Can I also say, though, Darlene and Ted, that my congregation um, does, does not think that people need to be baptized to receive. Like, that, that would be the other thing that I would say is I am also... I can think whatever I want. I can have whatever theological disposition I want, but I'm the, like, I, I submit to the discernment of my congregation and for them, they don't, they don't see the connection between baptism and communion as I do. They do see the connection between, um, wanting us to make sure that we, that we recognize that, that, that this means something for us to relationally, um, so that's also to say, like, that's also just what it means to be Mennonite, right? We are, um, we're part of communities that don't always agree with us. And this is a place my church does not agree with me. Yeah. And I, I think like from our context, part of the thing that's been very complicating for us is like, I mean, you, like you described a very good traditional Anabaptist perspective on church membership, baptism and communion. That is kind of like, we were, we were born into that way of thinking and were taught that way of thinking. 
And then we found ourselves in a community that had, I don't know, do we have a dozen Mennonite churches in our, in our small town? And it's like, we've actually purposely, we don't have Mennonite in our church name. And they say, well, why are you a Mennonite church? Yeah, we're a Mennonite church. And, and they say, well, why don't you have it in there? Well, like we have a Summerfelder Mennonite church, a Rhinelander Mennonite church, an evangelical Mennonite, Mennonite church, a Mennonite brethren church. We have a Burke Toller Mennonite. We have all these, what do you, what do you mean by Mennonite? It kind of becomes a bit like, um, the word Mennonite, just like enemy, the way you described at the beginning of our conversation, it seems like it has to hold a fairly large, um, just doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything in a sense. Yeah. And um, so it felt to us in a way to be Anabaptists, it, we had to kind of do something rhetorically different in a way to be more mm-hmm. like it was sort of like Anabaptism is what Anabaptism does, you know, kind of to use the Ferris Bueller sort of <laughs> kind of approach. Um, and same with membership and these things that they, they sometimes they become... Like when membership becomes actually a power structure to exclude, mm-hmm. um, how do you redeem it? You know, like, and, and I know some congregations have gone more the covenant way and you sort of like, we're going to covenant ongoing every year. We're going to recovenant and these kinds of things. And, um, it's such an interesting conversation, um, between the, the formal kind of the formal structures of accountability versus kind of trying to be communities that embody accountability and how do you, mm-hmm. you know, I, it just seems so complicating yeah. to us. And so t- to right. us, open table often feels like a bit more of a, of a, a radical move. And it's, mm-hmm. it seems like your traditional move feels more radical in a sense in, in your context. I don't know. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to revisit that. Maybe we need to revision, revision that. Um, well, I think, mm-hmm. I think we also, when we started Seeds, um, we felt a need to um, kind of unhook from, yeah, some of those traditions that seem to be more uh, things that got in the way of people um, being in relationship with each other and being in relationship with God and the earth and and so just like became too hoopy, you know, got to go through this hoop and this hoop. And it's so such a legalistic culture that, you know, we stripped away membership. Like we don't have membership at all, but still feel like as a community, uh, striving towards holding a sense of what we are and who we are and inviting people to, um, to be together in that, um, but not in a in a traditional kind of membership way. And the table also, like, you know, this sense. So I think maybe one of our edges has been um, that, you know, people would say, well, I can't do this, I can't do this because I did this and this and this. These All these ways that we, uh, people have felt excluded from the table and excluded from the church and excluded from being a part of the body. And so, well, what, what happens if we experiment with just like, um, taking away some of those markers and then inviting us to move towards something, not to throw away, um, the importance of some of those things, but, but to take away the, the 
the boundaries and create new, some new boundaries that are, so, I mean, whatever we could talk, we could talk about that probably for a really long time about what, what, how we think about our structure and our boundaries and stuff. But, um, and then using the table as something that can, um, isn't about, we come to the table when we're right, but it's like the table can kind of like transform us (laughs) and, we need it in order to be right, you know, with, mm-hmm. with each other. And so anyways, wow, I feel like we really have gone in a bit of a tangent, but I love it. That was great. I love talking about communion. Yeah. Also, let me just say you all are my heroes. I would love to get rid of membership. It's like, I do not like it. And, and this is like, also just like, so hilarious. I don't like it because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> like, I hate it when it's like, oh, we have to figure this thing out. And you're like, oh, well, let's see what scripture has to say. Like, that's what I think, right? Like yeah. we're Mennonites. I'm like, what does the Bible have to say? I'm like, there's no membership here. Yeah. Nothing to work with. Yeah. Literally nothing to work with. So I'm with you. I would love to get rid of membership, but again, I'm a lone read in that in <laughs> <laughs> my, my church in that I'm going to, I'm not going to die on that hill. No, that's Owen. good. You shouldn't die yeah. on that hill. <laughs> so can I, can I, like, can I know we're, we've used up a lot of time already, but, um, I want to talk about COVID and enemies <laughs> and anger <laughs> just a little bit because, um, um, I'm going to try to formulate this question, but, um, again, we find ourselves in this area. I don't know what your context is like, but we find ourselves in this area where there's like a lot of conspiracy theorists, um, uh, not in our community because kind of like what you described before, like, I think people would find out very quickly, you know, that maybe this isn't seeds, isn't the place for them. <laughs> um, and they can find a lot of places very close by that they can connect to. Um, but the, um, in thinking about power and victims, um, how I, I am curious about your response to just the subjectivity of people's experience of being victims. Like I'm just here, I hear so often people talking about like, you know, they're not, they're they're anti-vaxxers and they're the victims or they're the, you know, and it just the, the turning of tables where, where people that are clearly what I would consider in places of privilege and power. And the COVID thing is just one example, but where it's like, it's flipped and it's like, no, we're the, we're on the bottom. And how, how do you, I mean, I think the accurate assessment of power and, and is so subjective. It's like, how do you, how do you garner this accurate assessment of power? Mm. Yeah. I mean, the other example that I'll give is we're in this sort of perennial war about how we teach racial history in the South um, and I'm sure you have seen that there is this massive move based on 
at least what is offered to us is that children, white children feel uncomfortable learning about racism or they feel bad about it. Um, they don't like seeing themselves in the oppressor. So therefore that, um, discomfort is harm and that harm is something we should address. Right. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that you, we, we always have like the criteria that, that we, that we do this assessment from, right? Great. Like we can look at, um, oh, wow, there's historic, you know, we can do a historical assessment. Like there are people who've always, you know, felt that their personal freedom being, you know, by taking a polio vaccine or having to wear a mask during the flu was like a, you know, so we, we recognize that there's this trajectory. So maybe there's a historical assessment or a sociological assessment. Um, and what we have is like that we have our, our assessment from the, from what we know of Jesus. Um, and, and, um, so that's, that's our, that's like where our power analysis comes from. Like, um, and I think it's okay for, um, that to be, um, I guess like, like we, like we're sectarian in some ways in that sense. Like we say that like, this is, this is how we judge those questions. Who did Jesus, how did Jesus do a power analysis of his own world? How did he assess how harm was, was done in relation to the government of his day? And what does that mean for us? And what do we have to learn from the, from those around us who are also facing those situations? Um, and so I do think in some ways there are, it's, it's hard to get sort of a firm sort of sense of, um, wow, you know, like on Sunday we had somebody who offered a prayer request for people in his office who are going to be furloughed next week because they're not going to get the vaccine. And, and he rightly recognized that this is going to be really hard for them financially. They're making a decision. And even though he's vaccinated, he's still recognizes that this is going to be hard on their families. Um, and so there's, I, I don't know that there's any reason for us to, to not be able to say, yeah, we, we recognize that that choice is going to lead to difficulty for you. Um, and we also recognize that this is, you know, this is part of a much larger question that's, that's, um, that we have to understand within the context of who we are as people of God. Um, what does it mean to care for the common good more than, um, more than for our individual sort of consciousness. Um, what does it mean for us to trust the God of creation who has given us the given wisdom to doctors and nurses? Um, what does it mean to take, um, to believe truthfully the things that we, and to be able to discern truthfully rather than believing conspiracy theories, like, telling the truth. We believe in telling the truth. Like it's one of the Ten Commandments. Um, so we have our, we have this way of, of believing and forming our lives that we understand as we, as we discern scripture together. And it feels like all of those sort of questions, um, eventually find their ways into like, who are we going to be for in the church? Yeah. Like one of the funny things that we experience in our area, I mean, we're, I mean, we have many people coming from the Anabaptist Mennonite tradition, and there's a bit of a theological jiu-jitsu that's happening where our sectarianism from our history and our sort of resistance to governments and things like um, re resisting going to war. It's a conscientious objection. And then now in this present light, all these things like not wearing masks, anti-vax, 
all this stuff, it's all being cloaked in the same theological language of conscientious objection. And yeah. so there's a, it's a bit of a gaslighting sort of um, thing happening in a, in a lot of our communities, which makes it, it's kind of fraught because it's uh, in one ways they're, they're rightly thinking about the history, but they're using it in a way that's actually, um, I mean, the reality is we're no longer the oppressed <laughs> in our, mm-hmm. in our, in our, right. in our country, you know, like we're, we're not the ones being, um, you know, it's just not true. Right. And so right. how does tr- tell the truth in the context of sort of, smoke screens of Anabaptist theology. It's very, it's very tricky. And the same thing, I guess, happens in your context around sort of Christian ideas of like, you know, to be a Christian means to be free, right? And that Mm -hmm. means basically some form of conservative libertarianism that we can do whatever we want and, uh, you know, help yourself if you need help kind of thing. Right. It's also, though, interesting in your context, as it is on not necessarily in North Carolina, but in some contexts here in the U.S., where the story of the Mennonite church is also being very happy to work with the federal government to purchase the land that was stolen from indigenous people. Right. Like even this idea that, oh, we just don't work. You know, we've always been, you know, separate from the government's like. Well, except when it benefited, like you were, you were happy to like get out of like whatever tax, you know, like to, to kind of make a deal with the government around taxation or like to, to buy this land and, um, you know, to accept government subsidies for farms. Like all of these things are also happening in the Mennonite church that it feels a little disingenuous for, to make such a strong claim of, of separation from the government. Um, I mean, I think most of our taxes are 501c3s, right? <laughs> so, like, I don't yeah. know. For, our, for Canadians, <laughs> that's that's our RRSPs oh, for yeah. Canadians. Just uh, oh, okay, so, yeah, we're like non we're nonprofits. Yeah, you so were we talking American there for a second, but yeah, you know. sorry, I was doing so well up until that moment of my, my translation. <laughs> well, maybe that if, with 501c's, that might be a good place to kind of like. Li- li- start leaving the conversation i the the one thing I, I wish we would have talked about but we probably don't have time now we'll have to do it in the next one is around um uh, back to your book about how the whole thing around sitting at the table and basically breaking bread together not the communion table breaking bread but the idea of doing difference work enemy work in the context of relationship building like you kind of really push push us a bit on that, which I thought was a, a really provocative part of the book, kind of a, maybe something that makes us uncomfortable because, um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you want to end off with saying a little bit about, about some of that. I, I don't know. It's, um, you know yeah, what I'm talking I'm about. Talk now. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is, there was a, a pretty big movement here in the United States, maybe not a big, maybe we'll say a small movement in the United States for these, um, conversations between Democrats and Republicans after the election, right? Like this, and and sort of the the premise of this was if we understood each other, 
if we sat down and actually heard each other's perspectives, then we would find some common ground. We wouldn't be experiencing affective polarization because we wouldn't think of the other person as hateful or an enemy. We would see them as another human being, right? Um, and both, I, th- I think that generally social science has told us that that's, that's ineffective. The, the people who are um, actually willing to come to those conversations are usually people who are pretty moderate anyway. It's not like you get the people, the 4chan people and the, you know, like the far left people like being willing to sit down and have that conversation. I think the other piece that that misses um, is that actually, um, polarization happens in human history because people at the margins are demanding their rights, representation, um, the, the ability to flourish in a social order that has denied them that flourishing. The time in the United States that was most polarized was the Civil War, which was fought over slavery, right? Next, it's the civil rights period which is fought over Jim Crow laws, the feminist movement, extremely high time of, of public polarization. Um, polarization is, is not the problem. Like the problem is not getting people onto the same page. The problem is addressing um, why we have, why, why we're experiencing this drift far from one another. And it, and And so rather than seeing polarization as a problem, um, I think it's more helpful for us to see it as a sign um, that our allegiances are being called to people who are speaking up, which is why um, when, when, when there's nothing on the line, right, it's very easy for people to just sort of get along, right? Um, As soon as someone says, actually, I want to get married too, um, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, no, we that's not allowed. Like only straight people should get married. No gay people. Like that's, that's actually a sign that there's some kind of movement work afoot in our communities. Um, it's an opportunity for us to say, yes, we need to, we need to line up in solidarity with the people where, who are experiencing, um, uh, marginalization. It's not a time for us to try to fix that as a problem. And we take our lead from Jesus on that, as you said, like, that's where we go and we say, Hey, who was Jesus lining up in the polarizations? Right. Right. Yeah. You just find out where Jesus is and figure that out together and then go hang out there. And that's like, that's the gospel. So, oh, I, I just love that. I, Mm. I really appreciate that. I, you, you must, I mean, I feel like I cringe so much right now at the, like, all the calls for unity and, you know, the, yeah, the, (laughs) we don't need to, um, like just you saying that, that polarization is not the problem. Like we don't need to keep like talking about how we're so divided. We're so polarized. Like that's as if that's the problem. And I think that's, oh, that's going to be, that's a huge shift then so then our goal isn't our our unity is what what does that mean then I think I feel like like people are gonna say in our community like then what is what are we striving for if if 
polarity is not the problem or if polarization is not the problem, what, yeah, I, I'm not really, <laughs> no, I do, think that's you a know what question. I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And my, I would say, yes, I want unity around anti-racism. Yes. I want us to unify around um, our refusal to let books about racism be banned in the classroom. Mm -hmm. I would love to unify with everyone around that. I'm not going to try to seek some common ground with people who don't think that Toni Morrison's beloved should be taught in the classroom because they're scared about the transmission of white identity being disrupted for their white children. Yes. I'm just, that's, yeah. I'm not invested in it. I don't have time or energy. None of us has, has time. The, the hour is late as Jesus tells us, mm. um, stay awake. Um, because we do not have time to be messing around with that right now. Um, yes. all hands on deck. Well, that's all hands on deck. That's, that's a Aim. good place to end this podcast. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Melissa, for yeah, for dealing you. with us and uh, <laughs> and and sharing that book. I and we need to mention that you've written another book about the Old Testament, which I think would be a really important read for our community because we've done a lot of wrestling with our relationship to the Bible. And I think you have a great book there, and you've got something else coming. So I don't know if you ha- if you know enough about what's coming that you ha- you want to give us a little teaser about what you're writing. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've been, um, yeah, thinking a lot about in the season what it means to be creatures, about about our creatureliness and our shared creatureliness with other creatures rather than sort of a, a hierarchy of being with God, humans, everybody else, but um, what it means for us to be um, re- uh, co-contemporary receivers of gifts of creation mm. um, and how that might actually helps shift the economies that we participate in um, and how Jesus might've been shifting those um, sort of out of the stories of the old Testament about gifts. So, um, so we'll see if that materializes into something, (laughs) into something. (laughs) I mean, it sounds pretty timely. So, and and pretty irrelevant to what we're another thing that we're wrestling with as communities. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. It was good to have you. It was good to spend time with you all. Thank you so much. 